0: Hello and welcome to an we ink we trust tattoo and art culture in the San Fernando Valley, bringing you the latest who's making a mark on the t- tattoo scene. I am your host Anthony Sanchez. Today we're going to talk to Nathan Peterson from his namesake Nathan's Tattoo and Piercings in Canoga Park. Nathan began piercing in '93 and he opened his shop in 2000. So uh, thank you so much for coming by.
1: Great to be here, Anthony. I'm I'm honored.
0: <laughs> so what do you think
1: about the weather this
0: month in LA?
1: With LA, you never quite know what to expect. But growing up, I always had leaky roofs, so whenever the rain comes around, I always get a little bit nervous. Mm-hmm. But luckily, my roof doesn't leak. So, so it's doing... kind
0: of ingrained in you to kind of be like, uh-oh.
1: It's sort of a fear, like a scramble when you see the clouds coming in. It's like, okay, do we have a tarp? Do we have uh, some wet <laughs> roof patch? But but thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, no leaky roofs right now.
0: Yeah, we had a similar place in Baldwin Park. It was kind of, you know, a lot of people... They call that white flight. I think that area that when I moved into Baldwin Park, where you know retired people kind of didn't repair the place, and then they rented it to us, and we had a patio that would leak, and me and my brothers would take turns mopping out the patio because <laughs> yep. the water would just slowly get closer, closer, closer. Yeah, that would
1: suck. <laughs> it was like the great the great floods coming in.
0: Yeah, and it'd always be like, "Can you repair the roof?" And they're like, "Yeah."
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, I, I think you spend a little time between NorCal and SoCal. Do you have any favorite things between, between the two places?
1: Yeah, my wife is uh, from uh, Redding, California, so we go up there quite a bit. We uh, manage a building up there, so it's good to get away from piercing once in a while, swing some hammers, get creative with just uh, creating spaces and redoing apartments and commercial spaces, so it's good to good to get out of town um I love la third generation angelino but it's good to not have traffic once in a while to uh see some trees once in a while <laughs> to see even though the la river is coming up a little bit it's still uh nice to see real rivers and right. uh, nature so
0: yeah i forget that we have like basically that pacific northwest thing going up in the north so
1: definitely definitely and a beautiful place i mean smaller communities seem to be a little bit more enjoyable. And I I think in L.A., if you say hello to somebody on the street, they go, are you crazy? Or what do you want from me? So uh, up in Redding, if you say hi to somebody, they say hi back and they're happy to chat with you and not be freaked out by you.
0: Yeah, same when I, you know, my family's been here for a couple of generations too since the Great Depression. And I've noticed the difference between like, you know, it feels more New York here where you, you do bump into somebody they're like, meh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's sort of sad. I think it's getting that way. And I think some of it is some people move out here to make it big and they get disenfranchised and they bring some bitterness. So I think if you're a native Angelino, you're typically maybe a little more comfortable and a little bit nicer to people. Where if you're an uh, embittered transplant, you you uh, get a little bit more um, yeah. less tolerance.
0: Yeah, we could go on for days about that because we apparently we agree on that. You said it the exact same way I would have said it to someone else. Right on.
1: <laughs> I I've, I feel an affinity with you.
0: So. <laughs> um, did you since you grew up in kind of the 90s-ish? Did you happen to ever read the anarchist cookbook?
1: That was more in the 80s. I had a a neighbor that was always just doing weird stuff. He always was, like, making his own weapons and doing weird stuff. And uh, his dad was a Vietnam vet. And, uh, yeah, he just seemed like he was into that stuff, so we'd read it. But some of it was really weird. I think he was trying to get high off of banana peels. I think that was a big thing from the Anarchist Cookbook back in the day. But, yeah, during the during the 80s, I remember he had a copy of it. It was a big deal. you would have to go to some... A uh, little clandestine bookstore with some guy wearing a bunch of military garb and then <laughs> sliding under the table to you and and uh, yeah, it was really just sort of a, a a fun part of exploration and hunting. I think in in the '80s, uh, finding books like that.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I probably I knew about it in the '90s because that's when I was a teenager. But I was a baby. In the, well, I guess we're roughly the same age, anyways. <laughs> um, so why don't we talk a little bit about your you had a life as a roadie. It looks like.
1: Well, when I was, what was I, probably about 15 years old, I dropped out of Granada Hills High School, and uh, looking back, maybe I shouldn't have, because Granada Hills High School is so well-renowned now. I mean, it's like going to Harvard or something, but uh, at that time, it sort of sucked, and I just ended up leaving school one day, and uh, booking shows in my basement, and just traveling with bands and got a job with a record label. My friend Paul Mache brought me in as his assistant at Delicious Vinyl Records, and we did a little imprint label uh, with bands like Naked Aggression and another band out of San Diego called Antioch Arrow and roadied with uh, Rage Against the Machine for a while, did some videography there, and that was a lot of fun to see the early 90s, mid-90s L.A. music scene Really, really cool, and even in the piercing side of it, you had bands that represented that community. at had a band called Duchess sod and uh, that was very like piercing related. And, um, and and yeah, it was a great time.
0: What was it like as far as being a roadie? Like, were you just moving around gear, or it sounds like you're doing video as well? So it's just a little,
1: yeah. I think part of it, my friend Paul, who hired me at Delicious Vinyl, after a little while, he goes, a lot of people that get into music are just big music heads. It just, it, and I love music. I listen to music all the time, and I love exploring and learning. But I think I like the culture more than just saying, oh, I want to have a picture taken with this person or I want to be able to memorize every back of a Beatles album that ever came out. It was never much like that. It was just loving, loving the culture of it. And uh, when I got into it, my brother was a road manager for bands. He went to, um, to Europe with a band called Hana Garage, and they were playing with the cramps out there. And uh, I think part of it is he would just drag me along because I had a stronger back since I was young and I was free labor. So uh, I would get like a hamburger or something out of uh, breaking my back for a couple hours of dragging around gear. But when the band's playing, if you're working with gear, your job is pretty much done. Maybe you're protecting some of the pedals or if a cymbal's falling over. But those, are, those can be great vantage points to take photos from or do video from. So I'd always try and do that as well.
0: Um, so it sounds like there was a lot of music when you were growing
1: up then as well? Not necessarily in the the house, Um, maybe a little bit, but it was something that I started finding on my own. And I I think part of it was just, once again, just music and culture coming together. If you're a kid and you're skateboarding, you know, punk rock was great to skateboard to. And uh, it was neat just in my old neighborhood, a lot of the guys were into the bands in the golden era of hip hop. Uh, Eric B. and Rakim, and uh, EPMD, and Public Enemy, and, and it was it was pretty neat. And as time went on, I was primarily in the punk rock genre, but when you look back at Public Enemy, I mean, they were about as punk as it got in the sense of ethos, and, 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 and you could see similarities between those two genres of music, even though they might have musically sounded different.
0: Right. Um, do you remember the first time you hit, heard hip-hop then?
1: Probably, I think it was like the breakin' movie or something, mm. and I think probably '81 or '82. I was born in '74, so probably seven or eight years old, I imagine. Because yeah, some of the older kids in the neighborhood were, were breakdancing. So yes, I did have a pair of parachute pants, and I think <laughs> that was probably 1983 or '82 or. Did something. Did you learn
0: how to breakdance then? Yeah, a
1: little a bit, little but bit? but but I was horrible at it. <laughs> Yeah, my poor wife. I just I I hate dancing, and she loves it. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, when you're seven, it's like uh, that was the coolest thing. If you could get your parachute pants and you know a pair of uh, of of cool sneakers, you were you were on top of the world. But um, yeah, I was horrible at it.
0: What kind of music was around before that then for you? Uh, before I was eight, before hip hop and. Or even before you were eight, what <laughs> whatever memory comes to mind. Uh... <laughs>
1: probably, probably my mom just playing the guitar, and my dad was more into classical, classical music. But I was the youngest of four brothers, so the older kids you'd always hear what they were, what they were into, and some of my brothers had better taste of music than others.
0: Yeah, I I know that um, me being the oldest, uh, I guess I influenced a little bit of them, like my Bjork first they were like, turn that off and you know, now my baby brother's like, Oh, I listen to Bjork when I think about you.
1: <laughs> so it's it's sort of funny how the times change. It's it's nice to be validated with certain things when everybody's looking at you like you're a complete insane outsider. I remember early on in the piercing days, people were like, what's wrong with you? Are you a masochist? <laughs> you know, um, and then going to, I was actually going to hair school across the street from here at West Valley, and I got kicked out of there because um, because I had piercings and I'd dye my hair different colors. That was probably 1990, 91, and they had a rule, no party colors in your hair. So they pulled me out of class and they. They wanted me to grow my hair out so they could practice like uh, finger waves in my hair. And uh, so, yeah, I just sort of ruined my time there and I I ended up splitting. But um, now you go there and everybody's hair is dyed, everybody's pierced. And so it's sort of interesting how a generation can change the outlook. Right.
0: So what was L.A. like in the 90s for you?
1: I think for me it was just exploration. I have a friend... Brian Smith, who we just saw at the Bauhaus show. um, And it's neat. He's still working with music. And he played in a band in my basement. And uh, Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, one of uh, his road crew, my buddy Oren, you know, he helped me build our first stage when we were doing shows in my basement. And uh, Brian Smith used to say, Nathan, nothing is sacred to you. And I'd have to say over time, I've sort of brought in my passions a little bit. But I think in the 90s. For me, it was just very much about exploration, whether it's musically or how does a body connect to the mind or why are we here? you know all the great questions of philosophy what are we what are we doing here? What is our purpose so I think in the nineties for me, it was just relentlessly fearlessly seeking those things um so you started.
0: Piercing in the '90s, and it somehow it was connected to you being a roadie. So, ha, explain a little bit about that.
1: I think when I my first introduction to body piercings, besides nostrils and and such, uh, and uh, earlobes, was I think it was about 1990-89 when I was working with Honda Garage with my when my brother bring me to shows, and I saw that they had piercings, and it just intrigued me, and I was a pumpkin. I was like, this is awesome. You know, this is phenomenal. So I started just trying to figure, figure things out at that point in time and trying to learn more about it. And that was the introduction.
0: Um At that time, what, what kind of piercings were pretty normal prior to that, I guess?
1: I think at that time, a lot of the, the piercing community essentially came out of West Hollywood with a gauntlet. In the modern professional manner, as we know it, I know people could debate and pull up things from other decades, but the industry, as we see it now, came out of the gauntlet. And it was neat being around in that time, being in a small scene and having the piercing culture crossover with the music culture. And since it came out of the gay community, there's a lot of more maybe kink related piercings like nipple piercings, genital piercings. The Curve Barbell was initially called the PA bar, the Prince Albert bar, because that was its original application. So it was just a really fun time, I think, with a lot of creativity. People didn't quite know the boundaries. There's still a lot of exploration of what would work, what wouldn't. And there's just a ton of creativity. I think when anything's around for a while, people start writing more rules on it. So that was a time when there weren't as many, many rules where people are getting hyper creative. Are you are you hearing about any rules nowadays about piercing? You know what? It's not as much, I guess, yeah, I can clarify that. Some of it is, is I believe some people have stretched ears just because they like it. It's it's beautiful. I mean, it goes back through time immemorial. It's creative. I think it's it's a great look. And some people do it just because they go, hey, here's what I want to do. But sometimes I get kids or even adults, for that matter, coming into the shop that, it's like a one-upmanship, and it's what I hated about the 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 jock culture when I was a kid, where it was like, oh, I can bench press two hundred pounds, I can bench press 210. Oh, I can bench press two twenty. It's like, who cares? Just bench press what you feel comfortable and what makes you happy. So with piercings, you get people going, oh, what size are your ears? Oh, three quarters. Wow, mine are an inch. You know, and they'll like look down down on you <laughs> because of that. So I, I guess that's an area where it's it's not as reflective on yourself but putting yourself in a group of people and making comparisons amongst that of how many piercings do you have oh i have five more piercings than you do or whatever the case may be where it should just be hey do your piercings make you happy do you find enjoyment of them instead of making you feel better than another person does it just make you feel more complete as you
0: i I think there was also time like people or maybe you know some of the people that I saw getting them like just as a rebellion or, you know, it, it kind of as it becomes mainstream, it's harder for people to kind of decide where they stand on it to get a piercing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is is the in in, in that time too, part of the cool thing about it was it was such a cool subset of society where if you had piercings, it was almost like a secret a secret code. Uh, almost like uh, back in the in the gay community before the internet where people would wear handkerchiefs with different colors on different sides to identify themselves. I don't know. Are you familiar with that, the hanky yeah, code? Yeah, Okay. So, you know, key fobs and earrings and things like that. So there was sort of a certain coolness of it. If you had something, you ran across somebody else, you very much felt like a kindred spirit with them and a commonality
0: Right. I, I guess I should explain quickly. There was a, a hanky code for gay men and and the bars uh, to figure out what kinks you were into. It was mostly even the leather bars, but I, I don't I don't know exactly because that was before me. And um, you know, right side would be active, left side would be passive. So if you were into being, for example, top or bottom or you know, you doing this to this, like this, yeah, that whole.
1: Yeah, it was pretty interesting. It got to almost a point of ridiculousness before it fell out of favor. I remember going to the pleasure chest uh, on Santa Monica at one point, and they had like 150 codes, it's like, man, I got to like sit home. You're like a postman memorizing uh, zip codes to figure out what people are into. It's like, oh, if you're red with a stripe of this, you're into, you know, having lollipops and, you know, hanging out and drinking a Sprite <laughs> while you're, you know, hanging out with somebody. So yeah, it got it got really, really uh, expanded beyond a reasonable manner. But I think uh, like Black was uh, more into s and I think left was the, the the dominant side and right was the submissive side. So what was interesting is periodically not as much, but we get people coming into the piercing shop saying, oh, which side's a gay side to get pierced? And I tell them both sides, you know, are you a top or are you a bottom? So that's that's the the relevance of it. And I and I think people in the eighties and nineties thought the right side was a gay side because being submissive, people associated more of a submissive gay person with being gay. They didn't look at the, the the gnarly biker and think that he may be gay. So they sort of got a pass because they had more macho-ness associated with them. So when they saw, like, a, their sort of more flamboyant hairdresser with the right ear pierced because they were submissive, they automatically thought right was, quote, unquote, the gay side to get pierced.
0: Yeah, that was a thing at the time, too. Like, which side did you have a little earring on? um I mean, it, all that kind of disappeared once Grinder and Adam for Adam and Scruff came around.
1: Yeah, I think we basically just people just started doing both ears. They're like, ah, you know. <laughs> I think ear stretching probably played a little bit of role in that. You know, just symmetry. I think symmetry is a a, a neat thing. I I lean a little bit more towards towards symmetry.
0: Yeah, I mean I, every now and I see a guy with just has one nipple pierced, and I'm I'm like, why not just do both of them and. Yeah, I do, see, I do see and hear people getting pier- piercings removed more now, though. So maybe it's going the other way where they had their ear stretched and then they get it surgically. I don't know if you're...
1: Yeah, we, we, we run into a little bit of that, and I, I think some of it is, is people that stretch too fast and built up a lot of scar tissue. If they decide not to wear their jewelry, it doesn't close up nicely, and there's a lot of scar tissue that just looks sort of nasty and it. it's not as clean of a hole. So you see people getting that sewn up more. And I, I think people just go through, um, maybe if they initially got it maybe for the wrong reason, maybe they got it to fit in or under duress of uh, of of a boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever it may be, then maybe that relationship ends and they pull piercings out. I've seen that when when relationships end or start, I've seen some people come in more more often, why either to get things removed or things put in.
0: One thing I like about the septum, septum finishing uh-huh. is, like, you can hide it. I notice, like, you know, if you had to go to a job interview, you could just kind of whoop. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some of that, too, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a neat thing. And, and, and I think, too, some people, as they get older, they don't want as much attention. You sort of settle into life and, and your routines and your social circles and your just a little more comfortable and and you don't want as much attention where maybe when you're younger, you're looking to expand your network of friends and your sense of community. So maybe it's more of like a peacock thing of spreading the feathers to attract more people to you. But I think there is a validity in in different stages of life of just saying, Hey, let me sit back and just be a, a wallflower a little more and contemplate life and contemplate direction and past and present and future.
0: Um, so what was your first piercing?
1: My first piercing was uh, just earlobes as a kid. And then beyond beyond the earlobes, it was uh, my nipple. And uh, and then, yeah, and then a tongue piercing and uh, a frenum and an ampeling. And, yeah, I, I did a lot of my piercings. What was sort of interesting is in that time of the early 90s, there wasn't really much of an underage crowd wanting to get it done. It was more passed around, maybe the adult scene, maybe the bar scene. So you, you, you didn't really get kids under 18 getting pierced, but being that my brother would bring me to shows and I seeing all this stuff and, and, uh, understanding it, they didn't cart as much. It was really only a couple shops in LA. There was, uh, um, there was a gauntlet on Santa Monica and then there was, uh, uh, Crystal Cross working at Red Devil on, I think that was like La Brea. And uh, I I had my ampling done by her when I was 17, had my nipple pierced at the gauntlet when I was like 16. And maybe I just looked a little older, but I don't think they had as much problem of kids wanting to get piercings done. So it's funny. I remember going back to the gauntlet when I was like, 17 and three quarters or, you know, in 10 months, I was almost 18. And then they carded me at that point. They went and pierced me. It's like, well, you already did these other ones. You already did my tragus and my nipple and, you know, <laughs> such. So, so that was, that was sort of funny. It was,
0: it was beyond that point.
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 It was pretty, pretty funny. But at at that point I was, the gauntlet put out a great magazine, which I believe helped shape the piercing community for what it is now, which was PFIQ piercing fans, international quarterly. And they had a section called pierce with a pro because the gauntlet realized, Hey, we're in West Hollywood. The whole world can't come to us to get piercings done. So when they released their magazine, they would outline different piercing methods. It was almost like a little how to do this piercing. So the gauntlet sold supplies, um, uh, pleasure chest, sold supplies. So, you know, I'd read a lot of the PFIQs. I'd go to the gauntlet. When I was there, I would, because I was a broke kid, I would get apprentice piercings and I would hear them talking the apprentice through all the steps. And I would be trying to watch and learn and, and understand. And that was sort of the, the foundation of, of things.
0: Um, in that time, you, you would rely on these kind of textbooks or, or kind of how tos. I know that now they're one, I, I, when I was looking at the gauntlet, there was one person who came out of there that she made the piercing Bible. Yeah, my yeah, might yeah, know her, <laughs> yeah,
1: Elaine, Elaine Angel, or uh-huh. she used to go by Elaine Benny, and
0: um, so where, like you said, that was how you guys would learn how to do different piercings.
1: Yeah, that the piercing Bible is a, a, a newer, it's a newer book. Um, by that I don't know what it is now, maybe a, a dozen years or something since uh, she wrote that, but PFIQ was a big one. Fakir Musafar, who was a big influence on the piercing industry, he did a magazine called Body Play. There was another one out of um, England. I'm trying to remember what what that was, but it the, 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 the one from Europe or England dealt more with almost like music culture too. It was pretty neat and just fashion in a sense where Body Play and PFIQ was a little more it was more focused on on piercing
0: um and with the kink world do you feel like there was do you feel like there was a distinction like adult industry people getting more of a certain kind or could you even tell
1: with or or clarify your question well, a little kink,
0: like let's say nipple piercing mm-hmm. some people would just get it because it looks cool but some people that obviously if you were dealing with west hollywood pleasure chest pleasure chest mm-hmm. in case people don't, it's a adult toy store Yep. Primarily in West yeah. Hollywood, still there across from the the gay uh, theater, the last gay uh, it used to be called uh, Tomcat. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so it's kind of a, an era of you know you do this for a kinky reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think back then people did it more as a personal thing, and part of that probably was a little bit of society's judgment where you had to be pretty brave to get more facial piercings and things like that. You would constantly get people commenting or people pulling their children away from you, things like, like that. So, so with that being the case, a lot of it was a little more personal, even though there were outward things that could connect you to others. I think there was a kink aspect where there was more genitals, more nipples, and it was more just for your your personal life not for your outside life
0: and i guess to to kind of you know connect that to now are do you see the same amount of you know genital piercings
1: maybe that's a tough thing to quantify because okay. you have different factors where we're in the west valley mm-hmm. so being in the west valley we're we're dealing with maybe not the same clientele as, say, West Hollywood or Hollywood. Uh, Even though I've always been pretty connected to the gay community, you know, I had a lot of friends that came out when I was in high school, and that made me have a better understanding and a better love and, and care for people. But with that, the West Valley isn't really known for a really big gay community, so it's hard to say exactly what's going on there. And I think I do have quite a few gay male clients and they enjoy the services I have to offer. But I have a friend, Ian, who is gay and he gets a lot more interest than I do because a lot of the gay men want a gay man to pierce them. So, which is cool. And um, so he's, you know, he books appointments at my shop once in a while for, uh, for work. So. So some of it there's a lot of factors where it's hard to quantify exactly what's going on.
0: Okay. So I think what I'm hearing is maybe you don't get as many penis piercings personally cuz they go to Ian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, there may be a certain amount of that in just regions, but no, no, I think we we definitely do our fair share. And I think some of that's just our reputation of our knowledge, our cleanliness, right. our bedside manners. so so we do do quite a bit, but I think the reality maybe is is geographic Specifically, there's not a giant pool around us to pull from. I see. The, or, or just stabbing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it would also yeah. be
0: hard to tell because if somebody already has one, how are you going to know unless you're...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely.
0: Um, do you have any uh, warnings for people that might try to do piercings at home? Because I'm sure people still do. They used to do like baby neat, like you light a um, warm-up boat. A pin, sewing or, a needle, yeah, and you know, put a potato behind.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's sort of tricky because for me, when I got into this, a lot of it was just figuring it out. I had a friend's mom, a uh, nurse Debbie, who would help um, sterilize things. She would help, um, you know, get me gloves, get me uh, disinfection things, uh, get me needles, and you know, from from the medical field. So. When I did it, there's two shops in L.A., and there was no piercing shops in the Valley, so there weren't too many ways to learn how to do it, so I sort of had to do it by figuring things out, by doing research, by experimentation. But now there's a lot of great piercers out there. What I would say is if somebody's thinking about doing it on their own, a lot of times they're wanting to do it on their own either to save a buck And if they're trying to save a buck, I think it's better to look around at some reputable shops, see if they have an apprentice that will do it at a reduced rate, or if they're wanting to do it on their own because they want to do it as a profession, I think the better thing is, is to just look for shops that they like and talk to them and see if they're looking for an apprentice, ask that shop or that piercer what they can do to push forward to make themselves more desirable as an apprentice, because... A lot of times when people are piercing on their own and they come in and want an apprentice, that's a red flag to us. It shows a certain amount of recklessness and then it shows trouble in training as well because now we're going to have to untrain all these bad habits that they taught themselves. So I think it's better to to work with a, a professional shop.
0: Is there kind of a an unsaid rule about how long you need to train before you can take on an apprentice? Because like, that is like a red flag, probably.
1: You mean how long uh, somebody needs to be a piercer to apprentice?
0: Yeah, a piercer, like five years. And then, you know, because in academia, there's all these rules that have been there for hundreds of maybe thousands of years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think rules are, are good sometimes, but you, you need to look at, at why they were put there in the first place. There's a a joke within the tattoo community that goes, great, you've been tattooing for 25 years and you still suck. You know, great, you've been piercing for 15 years and you still can't do something properly. So so time doesn't always equate to quality. So even within my shop, if a piercer's been with us, say, for three years and we get a new apprentice, I'm not just going to say to that three-year piercer, hey, train this person up. But I may say, hey, these are things that you're good at after three years that you have a great understanding of. Maybe it's somebody who just has a great bedside manner or somebody that just understands technical aspects great. And I go, hey, train this apprentice in these areas. And then I can look over that piercer that's training the apprentice and teach them little nuances of teaching and how different people learn because everybody learns differently. So that allows for growth for that three-year piercer. So maybe when they're in five or six years, they may be able to take on an apprentice on their own. But some people are just horrible teachers. That's true. That's true. Even teachers.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I met them. <laughs> we talked about them earlier. Not here, though. <laughs> um, so is there is there like a, a, just a general, not to give away trade secrets, like what, what you like to work with with an apprentice? You're, you're looking for a personality or, you know, if they can't, if they can't pierce an ear without causing an infection, you're kind of like, hey, man, look for something else.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is interesting. And I'd say different piercers have strengths and weaknesses. I think the first thing is, is being passionate. If you don't have passion, you aren't going to stick around in something no matter what your opportunities may be. So passion is big. Beyond passion, I would say dedication somebody may be passionate about something, but may not know how to wake up in the morning and put their clothes on and show up. So dedication, I would say loving people. What we do is very people oriented. If you don't like people and you aren't patient and you can't love all sorts of people, we may have a 75 year old lady come in that's having a hard time putting her earrings in the next, next we have, you know, somebody who may have bad command of our language then we may have some, uh, somebody who's ultra wealthy and maybe feeling entitled come in, and then we may have somebody who's like borderline homeless coming in uh, that wants to get something done. So if you can't love all sorts of people, if you can't follow the golden rule of love your neighbor as yourself, then uh, for us at our shop, it's a, hard, it's a hard fit. So you really need to care about people, and I would say that those are, those are our key, key elements, obviously, when you get deeper in with people, what are their understanding of mechanics? Sometimes if people have like a construction background or they're a hobbyist that likes to sew a lot, if they do a lot of like fine-tuned crafty type things, that can help with a tactile sense of understanding.
0: Um... I just not my train of thought. Uh, are there any kind of rock stars in piercing? Oh,
1: like? oh, it's getting it's getting ridiculous. I mean.
0: How do you become um, a rock star in piercing? That that would be more, you know. Go ahead.
1: Well, well, well
0: some I people. I guess I walk away now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll be back. Some, <laughs> some, some people just, you know, truly may be talented, but they just want to convince the rest of the world that they're the greatest thing ever, and I think that that just comes from the need of people's attention to affirm who you are in the world, so they may convince people how great they are. Then there's other people, you know, just like like rock stars. You, You may have a band that sucks, but the lead singer walks around like they're the greatest thing on earth, and it's like, bro, I just saw your show. You sucked, you know? Three people showed up, and it was horrible, so but they'll still have that rock star attitude. So you get that whole gamut in the piercing industry, which I believe that any craft, any trade should come from a place of just passion and humility and just loving what you do and doing it because you love it, and let the rest of society determine what your place is in that realm. Uh, and I I don't think you should push for any sort of greatness in whatever you do in the sense of, Perceive greatness. I think you should pursue greatness in the sense of caring for your craft and pushing yourself as far as you can go. But but yeah, yeah, it's it's getting a little bit ridiculous. And I, and I think a lot of piercing came out of transition into the punk rock scene. And maybe some of that was a punk scene mixing with a gay scene in the 80s and into the 90s. But then the punk scene very much took the torch and you had a lot of punk rock piercers from from the nineties. And, 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 and I think punk rock a lot of times has a little more of a DIY humble aspect, but now you're getting these piercers that are just like, Hey, I want to make a lot of money so I can buy a lot of like Gucci and stuff. And it's just really, really bizarre to me.
0: I mean, if I was going to, um, wax poetic on that, it's also a Valley kind of, we're in a Kardashian world where it is about celebrity, so people are going to want to be pierced or tattooed by a celebrity because they want to feel like a celebrity. That piercer or that tattoo artist is like a Gucci bag to them.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think that's one of the hard things. As a businessman, what I should do is probably plaster multiple pictures of every celebrity client we get in our piercing and our tattoo side. And and we've had our a, a good, probably more than our fair share over time. But you've time. already
0: shared a little bit right verbally you've shared it but it's just not you
1: know yeah yeah but a lot of shops they'll they'll just totally blow it up all over the place and 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 that's great you know we've we've met some celebrities that are really really nice and really cool and really down to earth and just great fun people but at the same time just because somebody's a celebrity doesn't mean that they have a better understanding of our industry we're honored that they're coming to us and we believe they're coming to us because we offer a great service but at the same time, like I remember looking at the Playboy in the 90s where Drew Barrymore was in it and she had tattoos and her tattoos were horrible. Hmm. You, you know, they weren't that great we have to
0: go back. Maybe not. Maybe not like a Playboy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but
1: but her tattoos at that time weren't that great. But people could go, hey, Drew, I tattooed Drew Barrymore. And I it's see. like, yeah, you did a mediocre tattoo on her. And the ridiculous thing is, is you may get a lot of clients because of that.
0: That's a shame because she probably could have afforded a really good, and there was plenty of good artists here in L.A. at that time.
1: Yeah, and that's the worst thing when you see these, like, sports stars and music stars that have, like, the crappiest tattoos. And it's like, man, you got the resources. You probably have a personal assistant that could spend a couple hours on doing some homework and figuring things out but you see these people with horrible, horrible piercing and tattoos. And it's like, what's, what's the deal? And, and, and say, if somebody that has a a lot of clout or social media influence goes to somebody crappy and that crappy person pumps themselves up, they could gain a lot of business from it, but that's not because they're any, any good. And it's not because the celebrities have a better understanding of who is good and who isn't.
0: So as a, as a, a shop owner, because you you we talk a lot about piercings, but you also run a shop with tattoo artists. Are you picking those people? Because it sounds like that's something you have to look for if you're going to have somebody in your shop—a good piercer, a good tattoo artist.
1: With with the piercing department, I'm I'm a bit more involved in, In the tattoo side we have seven artists, and just uh, j- just an issue of just having a lot of people to manage. It became pretty cumbersome, so. Marco Antonio, I believe mm-hmm. he was on here yeah. before. The art of Marco Antonio to give yeah. him a little, little <laughs> boost on here right. uh, on all the social media platforms. But uh, he uh, he manages a tattoo site and he he does a better job at it than I ever would. Without being with me not being a tattoo artist, he does have a, a, a deeper understanding of the arts and the needs. And I love to death our whole crew, but uh, and they're all great artists. But artists. Whether you're a piercer, whether you're a painter, whether you're a tattoo artist, artists think a little bit different than society, than, than the mainstream society, which is brilliant. I believe they're able to see the future a little bit through their artistic outlook on things. But artists are, are, are trickier to manage than if I was like running a call center or something. I feel like I'd probably manage 50 people. But managing twelve artists is like managing probably a hundred people in a call center <laughs> so so having Marco do that I, I believe it just makes everything run smoother. I think it makes for a happier, healthier shop, divvying up the responsibilities
0: I mean in the in the, the year or so almost that I'm doing this now, um, it, you know I'm meeting these artists as well. How do you deal with the frustration of you know, some some are more professional than others. Some are, you know, great at getting back to you. Some are like, you know, just disappear off the face of the earth.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's tricky. Some of it is is something that I think corporate America has started to realize in the last 15 years is play to people's strengths. I think before that, corporate America would say, I hired you for this job. This is our expectations. I want you to knock it out of the park in every single... Category where I think how we run things is looking at people's strengths. If somebody shows up a little late, hey, maybe that person instead of saying, "Hey, you need to show up 15 minutes early," maybe to say, "Hey, you showed up a little a little late. Why don't you stay a little late?" So what they're like is just your your, your last batter that's just going to clean up. You know, like in baseball, they're just okay. You're the last one at bat. Clean it up. You know, so they may take the last client. So you can look at things to work well. You can take an unfortunate situation or take a lemon and turn it into lemonade by just looking at it overall. I think sometimes you get shop owners that want things, everything done a certain way. They're sort of control freaks with it, where I think if you loosen up, you can find benefits in what some people may look at as, as a, as a detriment.
0: Um What was uh, one of the challenges of opening a shop?
1: Um, I'm glad that we opened up here in 2000. Before this, I worked in Huntington Beach from 93 to 98 at the Sunline Electric Chair that's not there anymore. Is sort of a punky clothing alternative store that did piercings, and I cone a shop on uh, Ventura Boulevard for a couple of years, and I think coning a shop helped a bit because it helped ease me into it. It helped me build up some of my inventory, some of the materials, and... I think when you get into business, part of it is, is I tell people there's a certain amount of of insanity. You, you know, there's a certain amount of just going all in and just a certain amount of fearlessness and saying, okay, I'm going to throw everything I have at this. And if it doesn't work, I could end up, you know, borderline in the gutter, you know, when you throw everything at it. So there's a certain amount of insanity with it. But for us, it, it ended up working, working out. I, I, I think we came in at a good time. I think in 2000, I didn't have any heavy financial backing, so we've been able to make the shop a little bit more beautiful over time. Uh, shout out to my wife who does interior design; she uh, she's made it the most beautiful <laughs> it's ever ever been in the current yeah, era.
0: Full disclosure: I just found out today she was also in my mission college class. So, <laughs> yep. but we didn't we didn't conspire.
1: <laughs> yep, that's so 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 cool. One of the neat things is. Within certain cultures and community, just how small the valley can be, 2 million people, and we run into weird little uh, connections and crossways like that. But with it, when we opened up, I remember the I, it was a roundup here, I think, that did a little article on us um, years ago when we opened. And they, they said our display case looked like a like a snake cage or something like that. And part of it was just pulling from wherever you could, just doing the best you could, pulling all your favors that you could, and just trying to get things going. And the and the first year was was tough. I didn't really go out much because I couldn't afford to. I was just putting everything back into the business and just trying to improve it. When clients weren't there, you know, it's like I'd have a paintbrush out trying to Fix up the paint or improve on certain parts of the shop. So it was a very grassroots, natural um, progression for us over the years.
0: So when you were going back to Huntington Beach, was there a surfer culture there, or was it punk rock by then? It
1: it, it was it was uh, it was punk rock, and it was at least where we were a sort of a mecca. You know, a Sunline surfboards changed into uh, Sunline electric chair. Uh, they originally made surfboards in the 70s, and they started getting more into culture with uh, Mike Roach. Uh, he was a local punk rock guy. He helped usher that in in Orange County. So they did really well, and I think over time Hot Topic and the Internet sort of beat them up, and they dealt more with stuff made in America by smaller artists and smaller labels. And I think with fast fashion, that sort of makes that hard for for those companies to exist so they eventually ended up closing closing down but they were sort of a punk rock mecca you know there's different bands um a couple of the gals from uh, the band f minus uh were there they were the one of the first releases the first seven inch on hellcat records and 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 you had a lot of people coming through that were punk rock and part of the sad thing is in that area behind the orange curtain there was still a lot of like skinheads and racist down there. I'd remember going to lunch and like almost getting in fights with Nazi skinheads. And... I don't
0: think I've ever heard it called the orange curtain, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll my, I grew up closer to Whittier and my grandma lived in La Habra. Um, my half sister lived in Fullerton. So we kind of lived on the border of that. But me and my brother, since my brother's dressed more Cholo, mm-hmm. if we went like um, Brea, I think on the other side of beach or, or what I forget which street is closer to La Brea there. Um. Yeah, if, if we were, you know, riding through there, cop would come through and be like, Whoop you like where are you guys headed? What are he, you guys up to? All right, we'll just head back to Covina. I don't wanna see you guys coming back through here again. So. Yep,
1: that's what happens when you crack open the orange curtain. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but for some reason they're all right with a lot of SIG heiling Nazi skinhead Nazi low riders. But but thankfully that, that's uh not as common down there anymore and and uh, <laughs> but
0: unfortunately in the rest of America it is what-
1: yeah. 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 I guess it may not be as, as a parent, but you know, I think this is a whole other conversation, yeah. but yeah, yeah, I'm definitely not happy with where the world's at right now. But when we were kids, it was a bit gnarlier. I mean, in a physical sense, I mean, you could literally be on your lunch break, like getting in a fight, right? You, you know, and, and there is different ways that racism can present itself and, and be instituted. But I, I am glad that there's not as much of that. I remember even growing up in Canoga Park, you know, we used to have a ton of gangs here, you know. And I, I remember just, like, walking down to the market and, like, my buddy getting, like, punched in his face because he wasn't a cholo, you know. And, uh, you know, like, cholos would just jump people and there's just tons of gangs. So I'm, I'm at least glad that people don't need to physically fight as much as they, they used to in L.A. I mean, L.A. was gnarly in the 80s and 90s.
0: Right. Did you did you hear from any of the? I don't think the skinheads maybe had a conversation with you, obviously, but that kind of, you know, you're betraying your your white race by hanging out with people of color. or
1: Yeah, some of that was 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 pretty, pretty weird. But but I think a good thing is, is I've always had a good amount of loyal friends. So it was very rare. I'd just be on my own and get like cornered. You know, okay. usually it's like if you're in a group of people, it's not as big of a deal. And usually my group would be bigger than their group. So, so, so usually when when somebody's outnumbered, the the, the mouth stops moving quite a bit.
0: That that's uh, yeah that's a whole other thing that we don't want to get into. <laughs> or, I don't mind if we get into it, but yeah. I might I might get really upset.
1: <laughs> well, may, maybe we'll do a part two show. We'll do an, an LA maybe an LA culture uh, series is in the future for
0: you. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, so what what's the challenges of having so many more shops opening that are also tattoo and piercing? Because when you started, how many shops were ar- around?
1: There's probably maybe. When we opened, there's maybe six or seven in the valley. I mean, there's world famous tattoo emporium in Van Nuys. There was Graffiti Palace in North Hollywood. There was Think Inc. There was uh, probably a couple more. I think there's about seven, seven shops. So there's quite a yeah, there's quite a bit more now. But our our mantra has always been. We don't really care what other people are doing. Let's just focus on running our game, running it strong. Let's just care about and love each person that comes through the door, care for them the best that we can, uh, no matter where they are in life, find a way to, to meet them and, and just enjoy the experience together with them. So whatever other shops are doing is, is sort of relevant to us, whether they're open up next door or. I don't know. There's probably 50 shops in the Valley now, but, but as long as we're doing things well, we're, we're in a good position.
0: Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the other people at your shop?
1: Yeah, we have a, an, an awesome, an awesome crew, uh, Marco Antonio who manages a tattoo side. He's been tattooing for over a decade and uh, super talented artists. We, all of our artists are, are talented and, we have, uh, it's, it's pretty neat because we're starting to tap into the younger generation. I think a lot of shops, you start getting old together, and it's almost like I, I'm not a Freemason anymore, but I, I joined the Freemasons, uh, I don't know what it was, 15 years ago and you walk in and it's like God's waiting room, you know? All these all these guys are like 70, 80 years old and they never thought to bring in a younger generation.
0: They have a lot of really specific rules about how they can add people though, don't they? Yeah. Uh, Maybe not anymore.
1: It's a lot looser I think than one okay. one would think. And and there are some young people getting into it now um but uh but with that it made me realize like hey, we're all getting older. If we just sit there and get older together, we have something to offer as elder statesmen. As, we're, as our crew, some of us are getting into our 40s and hitting 50. There's a certain wisdom and a history and an understanding of the industry over time. But at the same time, you need to bring in fl- uh, fresh blood. So Marco's apprentice attrina, she's killing it. We have a guy, Sean, uh, Sean Gallagher, who both of them are in their mid to younger 20s. And, and it's neat getting that fresh blood in there. It's neat getting that kind of excitement and that kind of just passion fresh out of the gate and just seeing how they're seeing the industry from from their generation because things things change Um, we're honored to have Javier and Todd at the shop too they've been with us for you know over a dozen years and um, just have a great great crew there and and we we try and diversify the crew so when somebody comes in everybody can find an artist that will meet their, meet their needs.
0: Um, so are there any, uh, events and promotions coming up? I know you guys just had that Tim Burton things, so anything else planned?
1: Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, one of our guys, uh, big Ray Inc, uh, Ray, one of our guys, Ray, he's, he's doing a great, a great job with, uh, with doing the shows. He was working on that with all the tattoo artists and, um, and, uh, we're probably going to plan something for the, for the spring. It just takes a lot of work to do it. Right. You don't want to just schlep something together. Last Tim Burton show was, was really, really awesome. Antonio Palaya got involved with that and he, um, he, uh, he did a great job helping us curate the show and, and put it together. So we're in talks right now doing something else.
0: Cool. Well, um, Nathan, I want to thank you for coming by the show today. Uh, remind us where we can
1: find you. Perfect. We're at uh, Nathan's tattoos.com. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're at 7222 Topanga Canyon. I'm an old fashioned guy. So if you'd like to give a call, eight one eight four nine, or no, that's my cell phone. I probably shouldn't <laughs> give that out. Uh 340 Eight one eight three four zero five nine six nine. So yeah, we'd love to have anybody swing by anytime and, and uh, come and hang out.
0: Right, we have um, uh, Instagram, Nathan's Tattoo and Piercings, but um, we're going to have all that in kpcradio.com as well. So again, Nathan Peterson from Nathan's Tattoo and Piercings. Thanks again. Thanks again. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. I'm Anthony Sanchez.